C13 Originals. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. The madness had begun in the colonnade room of the McClure Hotel in Wheeling, West Virginia, on Lincoln's birthday, 1950. The guest speaker was Senator Joseph McCarthy of Wisconsin. He announced, While I cannot take the time to name all of the men in the State Department who have been named as members of the Communist Party and members of a spy ring, I have here in my hand a list of 205 that were known to the Secretary of State as being members of the Communist Party and who, nevertheless, are still working and shaping the policy in the State Department. The number of McCarthy's alleged communists was a moving target, his charges constantly shifting. But the details did not matter. McCarthy quickly rose to power and to prominence on a pernicious platform of hyperbole and imprecision. His own lawyer, Roy Cohn, could not discern any great ideological conviction in the junior senator from Wisconsin. Joe McCarthy bought communism in much the same way as other people purchase a new automobile recalled Cohn, a future mentor of Donald Trump's. It was just as cold as that. McCarthy was not without his critics. McCarthy's methods to me look like Hitler's, remarked Eleanor Roosevelt. In private correspondence, President Truman agreed that there is no difference in kind between Hitlerism and McCarthyism, both being the same form of warfare against the minds and souls of men. Perhaps the bravest early voice was that of Margaret Chase Smith, Republican senator from Maine. It mattered that Smith was a member of McCarthy's party. She was breaking with partisan orthodoxy to take her stand. I would like to speak briefly and simply about a serious national condition. It is a national feeling of fear and frustration that could result in national suicide and the end of everything that we Americans hold dear. I speak as briefly as possible because too much harm has already been done with irresponsible words of bitterness and selfish political opportunism. I speak as briefly as possible because the issue is too great to be obscured by eloquence. I speak simply and briefly in the hope that my words will be taken to heart. I speak as a Republican I speak as a woman. I speak as a United States Senator. I speak as an American. I'm John Meacham, and this is It Was Said, Episode 7, Declaration of Conscience. Born in Maine in 1897 to a barber father, 
Margaret Chase married Clyde Smith, who won election to the U.S. House in 1936. After he fell ill and died, his widow won a special election in 1939 and moved up to the Senate in 1948, the first woman in American history to win election to the Senate on her own. Detail-oriented and hard-working, Senator Smith was popular back home, a model of the now-extinct ethos of New England Republicanism at mid-century. I think Margaret Chase Smith is one of the most underestimated women in American political history. And if people really want to look, A, at how the Senate works, B, the battles that women had to take to have their voices heard, or C, integrity in politics, she's at the top of the list. This is the historian, Alita Black. Smith first went to the House, you know, to fill a seat that was vacated by her husband, but she quickly made a name in her own right, and then showed great audacity, if you will, to run for the Senate. And once she was in the Senate, she was shunned, basically, because the guys didn't know what to do with her. And plus, she was from Maine. You know, it was not like she had a gazillion electoral college votes. And she was a woman with a fierce independent streak. You know, it's like her Liz Cheney streak. In 1950, Smith watched the birth of McCarthyism with alarm. The nationwide commotion over the charges of communism and security risk in the State Department are reaching a climax. It has even left a trail around the globe. In this country, some Republican leaders have redoubled their cries of administration softness toward communists. Democrats have been in furious counterattack against the author of the charge. Abroad, evidence of the Soviets' post-World War II ambitions was genuine and growing. By 1949, Moscow had a successful atomic program. At home, the Republican Party, out of power since the Hoover loss of 1932, was eager to win seats in the House and Senate elections of 1950. Domestic fears of communist influence were potent and might just make a potent midterm issue. There was an increasing fear in America that the U.S. government had become communist, or at least was about to fall to communism. And the Republican Party, this rump group of the Republican Party, was leading that charge. This is the historian Heather Cox Richardson, professor of history at Boston College and author of To Make Men Free, A History of the Republican Party. Republicans were facing a real issue within their own party because most Republicans had swung behind the liberal consensus to believe that government had a role to play in regulating the economy and providing a basic social safety net and even protecting civil rights as well as trying to invest in infrastructure. So for many Republicans who hated the New Deal, hated that new government it brought, they had a real problem. So what they started to do was focus on the idea that this kind of liberal consensus, this idea of the government playing a role in the economy, for example, and in civil rights, was actually a form of socialism or communism that was snaking its way into American society. People like Joe McCarthy, who was a senator from Wisconsin, a junior senator who had had really quite an undistinguished career, grabbed hold of that idea and tried to use it to win re-election and also to win control over the Republican Party and with that over the American government. 
There is that small, closely knit group of administration Democrats who are now the complete prisoners and under the complete domination of the bureaucratic, communistic Frankenstein which they themselves have created. Ladies and gentlemen, they shouldn't be called Democrats. They should be referred to properly as the commie crap party. Joe began to get publicity crazy, Smith recalled in an interview with the historian David M. Oshinsky. And the other senators were now afraid to speak their minds, to take issue with him. It got to the point where some of us refused to be seen with people he disapproved of. A wave of fear had struck Washington. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. It's after bedtime, the kids are asleep, and the moms are out to play. We're Dina and Kristen, the duo behind the Instagram account, Big Little Feelings. I'm Dina, I'm a child therapist and mom of two who nerds out on all things neurobiology and psychology, and Kristen is a parent coach who wrangles three kids on a daily basis, here to give it to us like it is. We weren't meant to do this parenting thing alone. Consider After Bedtime your village. Follow After Bedtime with Big Little Feelings on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. In late 1949, McCarthy was given an FBI report detailing allegations of communist infiltration within the federal government, particularly within the Department of State. It was not new information. A copy had been on file at State since at least 1947. In truth, the Soviets had made strides in penetrating Washington in the 1930s and early 1940s, but a loyalty program had rolled up many of the agents. Now, in the waning hours of the decade, Cold War ultra-hawks wanted to press the case, even though most observers believed the case largely closed. McCarthy was in. As he put it, he would buy the whole package. Why? Roy Cohn offered two reasons. The first was patriotic, Cohn recalled. He was worried about the threat to the country posed by the communist conspiracy, and he decided to do what he could to expose it. The second, McCarthy, Cohn said, saw the dramatic political opportunities connected with a fight on communism. McCarthy was gifted with a sense of political timing. Sometimes he misjudged, but on balance his sense of what made drama and headlines was uncommonly good. He had found, he thought, a politically attractive issue he could sink his teeth into. I will never avoid giving the facts to the American people. I don't intend to ever avoid giving the names of traitors, giving the names of communists, when I discover them in important position. 
Joe McCarthy had managed on Lincoln's birthday on February 12th, 1950, to rouse people behind the idea that communists had infiltrated the American State Department, and the Secretary of State knew it. From there, he went on to accuse President Truman of being complicit in this takeover of the American government by communists. The GOP, President Truman said, was more interested in partisan advantage than in national security. The president told reporters, For political background, the Republicans have been trying vainly to find an issue on which to make a bid for the control of Congress for next year. They tried statism. They tried welfare state. They tried socialism. And there are a certain number of members of the Republican Party who are trying to dig up that old dead horse called isolationism. And in order to do that, they are perfectly willing to sabotage the bipartisan foreign policy of the United States. Senator Smith was not on board. She had seen her own home state of Maine almost overtaken by the rising Ku Klux Klan in the 1930s and the 1940s. And she had stood against them in Maine When she saw people using the same tools to take over the American government, she dared to stand up on the floor of the Senate, several rows in front of McCarthy himself, and call out that reliance on fear and hatred and on othering of Americans themselves to take back the government for democracy. On Thursday, June 1st, 1950, fewer than four months after Wheeling, Smith issued what she called a declaration of conscience against McCarthy's methods. As Smith recalled it, she ran into McCarthy, who had flattered her in the past with the suggestion that she would make a fine vice presidential nominee for the Republicans in 1952, as she was on her way to the floor. Margaret, McCarthy said, you look very serious. Are you going to make a speech? Yes, Smith replied, and you will not like it. Is it about me? Yes, Smith said, but I am not going to mention your name. She rose a few moments later on the Senate floor. I think it is high time for the United States Senate and its members to do some soul-searching, for us to weigh our consciences on the manner in which we are performing our duty to the people of America, on the manner in which we are using or abusing our individual powers and privileges. Those of us who shout the loudest about Americanism in making character assassinations are all too frequently those who, by our own words and acts, ignore some of the basic principles of Americanism. The right to criticize, the right to uphold unpopular beliefs, the right to protest, the right of independent thought, Smith spoke truth to power. The American people are sick and tired of being afraid to speak their minds lest they be politically smeared as communists or fascists by their opponents. Freedom of speech is not what it used to be in America. It has been so abused by some that it is not exercised by others. Today, our country is being psychologically divided by the confusion and the suspicions that are bred in the United States Senate to spread like cancerous tentacles of know-nothing, suspect-everything attitudes.
ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Relationships are hard, and that's why I'm here. Hey friend, it's Cammie Crawford. Think of me as your big sister slash audible BFF that you could always trust to give you the real tea. This is my show, Relationship, the advice podcast that covers all relationship topics. Send your story to hello at relationshippod.com or DM me at relationship on IG and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Listen and follow Relationship with Cammie Crawford on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. The words were powerful, and given the issues at stake, measured. Smith was not calling for McCarthy's head, and was, as a good Republican, quite happy to note her disagreements with the Truman administration. America is rapidly losing its position as leader of the world simply because the Democratic administration has pitifully failed to provide effective leadership. Surely it is clear that this nation will continue to suffer as long as it is governed by the present ineffective democratic administration. Yet, to displace it with a republican regime embracing a philosophy that lacks political integrity or intellectual honesty would prove equally disastrous to this nation. The nation sorely needs a republican victory. But I don't want to see the Republican Party ride to political victory on the four horsemen of calumny, fear, ignorance, bigotry, and smear. While it might be a fleeting victory for the Republican Party, it would be a more lasting defeat for the American people. And yet, and yet, the Republicans were by and large enthralled to Joe McCarthy. They feared the passions he had provoked in the country. They preferred to let the storm rage rather than seek to calm it. Our nation may well die. Our nation may well die. And I ask you, who caused it? Was it loyal Americans or was it traitors in our government? Eisenhower tried to undercut people like Joe McCarthy by ignoring them, by pretending they didn't exist by talking over them, as it were, so that people would pay attention to him rather than to the radicalism of people like Joe McCarthy. The problem with that is the same sort of problem we ran into after the American Civil War, that until that sort of hatred and that sort of divisive language is called out as being un-American, as it is, that kind of language is not made odious. It is not something that people have to turn away from. There's no political or social penalty for embracing it. So while Eisenhower thought he was healing the country, in fact, in many ways, he was simply permitting something to continue to fester. Smith chose differently. As an American, I am shocked at the way Republicans and Democrats alike are playing directly into the communist design of confuse, divide, and conquer. As an American, I don't want a democratic administration of 
whitewash or cover-up any more than I want a Republican smear or witch hunt. As an American, I condemn a Republican fascist just as much as I condemn a Democratic communist. I condemn a Democratic fascist just as much as I condemn a Republican communist. They are equally dangerous to you and me and to our country. As an American, I want to see our nation recapture the strength and unity it once had when we fought the enemy instead of ourselves. Too few heeded Smith's warning. She was about four years ahead of most of her colleagues. While she did convince six other senators to join her declaration, a defiant McCarthy dismissed them as Snow White and the Six Dwarves, the Republicans were open to seeing where McCarthy's act might lead. Joe, you're a real son of a bitch, Senator John Bricker, a Republican from Ohio, told McCarthy, but sometimes it's useful to have sons of bitches around to do the dirty work. Smith would be vindicated in 1954, when the Senate at last censured McCarthy, who remained a hero to a significant portion of the country, even after his colleagues rebuked him. Regardless of what the Senate may do about a censure, this fight to expose those who would destroy this nation will go on and on. But Moore chose to follow the path Senator Smith had charted. Her Declaration of Conscience read, We are Republicans, but we are Americans first. It is as Americans that we express our concern with the growing confusion that threatens the security and stability of our country. Democrats and Republicans alike have contributed to that confusion. To this extent, Democrats and Republicans alike have unwittingly, but undeniably, played directly into the communist design of confuse, divide, and conquer. It is high time that we stopped thinking politically as Republicans and Democrats about elections and started thinking patriotically as Americans about national security based on individual freedom. It is high time that we all stopped being tools and victims of totalitarian techniques, techniques that, if continued here unchecked, will surely end what we have come to cherish as the American way of life. The speech was not without its short-term political pain. As the House Historian's Office notes, among the costs were her removal from the Republican Policy Committee and a drop in seniority on the Permanent Investigation Subcommittee of the Government Operations Committee. It did not matter. She had done what she thought was right, and the ages have proved her courage was deployed in a noble cause. In 1989, George H.W. Bush awarded Senator Smith the Presidential Medal of Freedom, saying, Margaret Chase Smith was the first woman in American history to be elected to both houses of Congress, serving for 32 years, 
holding office under six presidents beginning with Franklin Roosevelt. Her talent, intellect, and distinguished service to this country resulted in her becoming the first woman to have her name placed in nomination for president by a major political party. Senator Smith's finest hour came when she issued the Declaration of Conscience, an historic and courageous speech denouncing McCarthyism, and she spoke out when so many others remained silent. We honor Senator Smith today for her commitment to truth and honesty in government and in America and to strengthening America at home and abroad. She looked beyond the politics of the time to see the future of America and made us all better for it. So said President George H.W. Bush. History had condemned her foes and honored her. On the next episode of It Was Said, Season 2, Frederick Douglass delivers a searing speech about Independence Day, summoning the nation to remedy the contradiction between slavery and the founding principles of freedom of the United States. Thank you for listening to It Was Said, Season 2 a creation and production of C-13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio in association with the History Channel. Executive produced by me, John Meacham, and Chris Corcoran of Cadence 13. Written and narrated by me, John Meacham. Production led by Margot Gray. Edited, mixed, and mastered by Chris Basil. Production coordination, research, support, and consultation by Lloyd Lockridge, Bill Schultz, Sean Cherry, and Bob Tabador. Marketing, PR, sales, operations, and business affairs, led by Maura Curran, Josefina Francis, Kurt Courtney, Hilary Schuff, Lauren Vieira, Lucas Santroen, Bill Schultz, Lizzie Roberti, Danny Kutrick, and Karen Andrews. Creative consultation by Eli Lehrer and Jesse Katz of the History Channel. Our theme song is I Can Almost See You by Hammock. Our closing credits theme song is Light by Michael Kiwanuka. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. We're miles apart but safe in dreams You're running far Be young and dark We'll always be One of the road To Fall on your knees to find a love.
Hey friends, this is Jen Hatmaker, your happy host of the For the Love podcast. You may wonder how I got into this podcasting thing. Well, I'm a speaker and an author who has happened to write a few New York Times bestselling books that really resonated with a pretty large community of women. And I thought, how great would it be to drop into the ears of this growing community every week via the magic of podcasting? So that's what we did. And I'm delighted to say we've been able to spark a bit of delight and uncover some hope and talk with great people about the big and small things that we care about and that affect our lives on the daily. So I'm thrilled to invite you to join me every Wednesday for new episodes of the For the Love podcast, where you'll hear the most incredible conversations with some of the best people on this planet. We're going to bring you moments of connection and laughter and hot takes on the things we care about going on in the world. So listen to and follow For the Love with Jen Hatmaker a Four Eyes Media production presented by Odyssey. You can get it on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.